And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I am Harmony. This week we're reading Displacement by Kiku Hughes. Harmony, this was a you pick. You want to tell us a little bit about what it's about, why you picked it, what your impressions were, all that good stuff? Yeah, so I, I I haven't actually read this book before now. I was introduced to it from one of my YA reading classes that I had in grad school. And the other students were raving about it. And I kind of knew what it was about in that I knew that it was about the internment camps that happened around the World War II era and happened to Japanese people in America. And I don't really specifically know that much about that history. It wasn't something that they taught us in school. So I was interested in learning more about it. And this seems like a great kind of easy way to dig into it. The book is actually about a girl who kind of magically, although this this could be a metaphor, she kind of magically goes back in time to when her grandmother was in a internment camp with her family and lives out this experience for an entire year of her life. And it's just a really fantastic book. It takes place in the modern day towards the beginning and towards the end. There are, it, it's a graphic novel. There are panels of Donald Trump talking about the Muslim ban and America first. And there are news clips in the end where you see clips from, from children being torn away from their families. So it feels very timely. And I didn't know anything about that. I was particularly surprised by this kind of magical aspect. And it deals with community trauma and kind of unpacking your ancestral trauma and also learning more about your culture and your heritage. And it was just a really beautiful read. I cried a lot. Maggie, what were your first impressions? This is a book that I had no impressions about. I, I bought it because Harmony was like, we're reading this for the podcast. I said, great. It's a graphic novel. Sounds cool. So I knew nothing about it going into it. And then I cried a lot. And that was really, <laughs> that was really my vibe. Having said this, though, this was a really impactful, really interesting read. I think that Harmony really hit on all the main parts. I mean, this is just a beautiful and sad and impactful story about a part of history that is very purposefully pushed out of history classes and kind of under the rug by the U.S. government. I knew a little bit about this history specifically of Japanese internment camps because I now live in Seattle and I'm a historian in Seattle. So it's kind of my due diligence to have a sense of, of the history of this area and internment camps were a huge and affecting portion of local history here that we still see generational trauma with 
for large swaths of our community members here. But even so, I mean, as with everything, it's one thing to know a thing happened. And it's another thing to read a book that is part memoir, part fiction from somebody who is Japanese American, who is thinking about and dealing with that generational trauma herself and in her life, and really getting that sort of behind the scenes thought process and aspect of that emotional impact and, and that historical impact. I would say for me, as a historian, some of the parts that and some of the one lines in this that I found most impactful were specifically about why silence is so oppressive and why history and understanding our history, both personally and as a community and as a country is so important. Obviously, that's because that's my day to day life now. And and that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about. So that really resonated with me. But there's so much to think about here. And I will say as well, I was really moved by how much of this story actually is told through the art of the graphic novel. The last graphic novel we talked about was Parenthesis by Elodie Durand. And that graphic novel relied a lot on its imagery to tell its story too, but there was still a lot of text in that graphic novel. This graphic novel actually has very little text. There are multiple pages where there's panels with absolutely no text at all. And I was kind of worried the first time I encountered that because if you've been a longtime listener, you'll know that that sometimes has been an issue for me in connecting with stories that are told in this format. But I really connected with it here. I thought it was just so moving. And yeah, I, I just, I really wasn't expecting to cry so much today. That was not what I, what I went into this Wednesday expecting to get out. That was so rambly. I'm so sorry. No, you're perfectly fine. So there are a lot of themes that I wanted to focus on. I guess maybe we can just kind of start from the beginning. The idea that she calls her time travel, the main character calls her time travel displaced or a displacement, which is, as we've stated, also the title of the graphic novel. I thought that was really interesting, and I think it's very deliberate and probably not very coded. It it relates a lot to this idea of physically being displaced and an internment camp. I don't know. I guess, like, what what do you think about that? Does it make sense for a 17-year-old to call something like this displacement? And what was the effect reading that? Yeah, that really stuck out to me, too, that from the beginning, the main character, whose name is also Kiku, calls this this sensation and this feeling a displacement. And I think on the one hand, it does make sense for a 17-year-old to frame things that way. But I think that one of the underlying themes of this graphic novel is the way in which these Japanese internment camps slash American concentration camps, which the author explains are both terms used to describe this period in history at the back of the at the back of the novel. She gives you a very personal inside look to that experience. But she also talks explicitly and implicitly about the ways in which displacement is one of the biggest legacies of the American empire and American imperialism, because it's not just displacement from one's home in the 1940s. It's also the displacement of millions and millions of indigenous people when colonizers first arrived here. It's displacement of enslaved peoples from their homes in Africa being brought here and then being told after they were set free that they were no longer welcome in the the only places that they had known. It's the ways in which displacement and this one experience that she's describing is so indicative of 
American culture, American colonialism, American imperialism, and that displacement means so much. And I think that one of the things she sets up at the beginning of the novel is this line that says, some things happen whether you're paying attention or not. And that to me, I think really set the tone for why displacement I think can sometimes be so easily ignored and shoved under the rug by white supremacist culture in the United States, because it's a lot easier to ignore when you're part of the dominant power, people being moved, but they're being moved to a safe place or a safe location and heavy quotes, than it is maybe violence that looks or feels more outright when it's not happening to you. And yeah, I just thought it was really clever. I I think that calling it displacement, talking about displacement talks, it's, it's so succinctly describes not just this one experience that the graphic novel focuses on, but also describes so much of what else is happening in American history. I did not catch that at all, the connection to American colonialism beyond the fact that, I mean, beyond the white supremacy aspects. So thank you for highlighting that. Does she talk about that in the author's note? I don't think she does, but to me it really came together when she talks at the very end of the graphic novel about, again, how this relates to the 2017 Muslim ban, which is sort of what's happening in the present moment in the graphic novel. But she also talks about families being separated at the border and kind of migrant rights. And to me, all of that just felt very much... I don't know, just very interconnected to the larger narrative of American colonialism. That most certainly makes sense. And thank you for framing that for me and for our listeners. I think part of that is also this idea that she plays with in the novel of feeling like an outsider, even in your home. There are these two Japanese words. I have to scroll all the way to the back of the novel. Okay, so she has the... Issei, which is the first generation, I'm sorry if I'm saying this wrong, the Issei, which is the first generation people who immigrated from Japan, and then the Neisei, and that's the second generation. And that's kind of what Kiku, even though she is third generation, or actually she's fourth generation, which is called Yansei, refers to herself when she is displaced in the 1940s. She's kind of more a part of the Nisei generation but that divide there and the experience of displacement really highlights for me this idea of being in a country and still being othered and still feeling displaced even when you're in your own home so these people are being physically displaced but we see later on towards the end of the novel the ways even after the internment camps ended that Japanese Americans were still displaced in a in a manner of speaking within these these new lives that they had formed for themselves. Kiku's grandmother, we we get to follow her life a little bit and she is a single mom living in New York City in the projects and that is a sort of displacement because there's no one around her who speaks Japanese and so they lose that language and that culture and it's also going on in the 70s when the model minority myth takes hold. So there's there's already some sort of division happening here of this idea of being a good minority and what it takes to fit into American society. And that theme runs throughout the entire novel. So that's really interesting because I think at the beginning of the novel, 
It starts with Kiku and her mom going to San Francisco, and Kiku's mom really wants to see where her mother lived and grew up in San Francisco, and the house has been torn down and is made into a mall. And Kiku doesn't really get it. She doesn't really get why her mom is so sad. She doesn't really want to be there. And then she ends up displaced, and she sees her grandmother, and she feels that. She feels... She starts to feel the effects of the racism that her her family and the trauma that her family has faced and starts to get it a little bit more. So that's really interesting, Maggie. I think that's all I have to say about that. But thank you for highlighting the colonialism aspect because that encouraged me to think about this a little bit deeper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think too, something that you said that was really interesting that I want to expand upon a smidge is it's not even just that they lost that connection to their culture, it was also to a certain extent purposefully given up for safety. This this feeling and this idea that if they disconnected from speaking Japanese, if they disconnected from certain parts of their Japanese culture, that would clearly mark them as outsiders. Generation by generation, they would get safer. And in fact, I think we see some of that with our main character, Kiku, who at the very beginning, I believe she says she's a quarter Japanese and is white passing and talks about the fact that when she's first displaced, she ends up in a line of people who are essentially waiting to be assorted into various internment camps. And she is asked if she even needs to be in said line because she is white passing. And then she pops back into San Francisco at the time because it's it's the first one is very quick. And that's when she even starts to Google and starts to think about that experience and finds out that if you were 116th Japanese, then you were then forced to be displaced, you were forced to go into these camps and, and moving on from there. And a lot of what she wrestles with while she's in the past, and then what she's thinking about when she's going into the future, is that deliberate separation of culture for safety's sake, but also the power of memory and what happens when those memories aren't passed down and the ways in which it still affects you. And she thinks so deeply about memory in relation to culture. And she really has this evolution throughout the novel as she thinks about memory. So for example, while she's back in this camp, she's in Utah at this point, a man has supposedly tried to escape, supposedly tried to escape the camp and has been murdered by the guards. And she talks about the fact that they had to really push to be able to get a funeral for him. And on page 203, she says, it was a victory that we would not win every battle. A memorial dictated to Mr. Wakasa, erected by a group of Nikai landscapers, was quickly removed by the camp director. A memory is too powerful a weapon. And then later in the novel, when she's back in Seattle in present day with her mom, she's having a conversation with her mom about all of this. She discovers that her mother has also been displaced and she's reflecting on why her grandmother died of cancer so young. And they're having this conversation and on page 254 and it says, even if it is just a rumor, the fact that it even became a rumor is pretty telling. Rumors start when there's fear and a lack of information and they stick around and influence our memories forever. So there's this real, I think, way in which that even when we try and purposefully lose our culture, and again, it's for safety, there's the ways in which it still sticks around generationally, even when you're kind of trying to divorce your family from it. And that memory is still important and powerful and potent. And it's really beautiful to, I think, watch Kiku 
want to reconnect with that aspect, as well as also understand why her grandmother made the decision to kind of divorce her family from that aspect of her culture and her life. But to know sort of for the first time, the ways in which that generational trauma and that memory, even though it was never explicitly talked about and talked to her about before these displacements, is still affecting her and still affecting her family and still affecting her daily life. It was just it was just really powerful. This book has so few words and every one of them really counts and every one of them really makes you think. And the ones about memory and the way we remember, I think, really stuck with me personally. Yeah, I was when you were talking about the the death of the the man who was shot and there are there are claims that he was trying to escape, but no one seems to believe it. And and the relationship to rumor, I also was I was looking through to find the 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 quote about rumors. I guess something else that you focused on this idea of divorcing yourself from culture for safety. I think something that stuck with me throughout this book was how it it showed empathy and it just really it made. It showed a lot of empathy and care towards everyone's decision making during this really hard time, particularly when we're in the displacement. We are exposed to a lot of radical characters, people who refuse to lose their culture, maybe. I guess everyone kind of was a little bit less hesitant on the cultural piece, but during the displacement or during the internment camps, people were given sheets and they were told that they could go to war, but they had to prove their loyalty. And some people, particularly the people who were not born in America, also had to denounce the Japanese government, which would have been really problematic because then they would have had nowhere to go if America decided to send them home. And I think that did actually end up happening to a few people in the book, did it not? Yeah, I don't know if it actually happened to people in the book that people renounced their Japanese citizenship and were then deported. But that was the, but I know that did happen to historical actors in, in real life. But a lot of people in the book struggled with the tension of, I've been denied citizenship by the United States. And now they're asking me to rescind my, my Japanese citizenship and my loyalty to the emperor and if I do that, I legally have nowhere to go. I legally be- belong nowhere. Yeah. Anyway, I just really appreciate it because Kiku admits that when she heard stories about this ha- occurring in the camp, the people who said no to both the army and renouncing their Japanese citizenship were seen as rabble rousers, right? And they were they were painted in a bad light. But Kiku actually ends up hanging out with these rabble rousers, even though she herself isn't really that type of person. And she also, something else that I feel like kind of goes along with that, that's painted throughout the story, primarily through pictures, is her relationship that she develops with a young woman named May. So she's in the 1940s in a Japanese internment camp, and she's also developing a queer relationship. And all of her friends tend to be these people that are like, this is bullshit. They are selling us propaganda and trying to find spaces for themselves where they can fight back. But the book does a really good job of not painting that as the only way you can go. It shows how people can fight back in a way simply by trying to beautify their environment. And it also shows a lot of sympathy for people who were scared 
and didn't have anything else and so did renounce some of their identity or their citizenship or went more went along with the the oppressive rules that were being forced upon them because they didn't feel like they had any other choice. And I don't know. That that's just something that really sticks with me especially going into the future I think because it's so easy right now for for people to demonize each other right because we're all so very polarized and even something like wearing masks right there's this very individualistic take on it that we have for each other there are people who are believe in COVID and there are people who don't right but in reality we're all dealing with something really scary and crazy and we don't have that much control over our lives not to equate wearing masks of course to being in an internment camp but that level of empathy really stuck with me and is something I want to carry forward into my life after reading this. Because people are just people and we're all just trying our best. Yeah, I actually really appreciated the way that the author positioned Kiku in all of this because she's hanging out with some of the people in the camp who are a little bit more radical, who are part of the no-no boys, which is what they were, which is what people who said no to both question 27 and 28 were called. And she's got a lot of, she does so much growing because she recognizes the fact that she was aware of no-no boys and sort of bought into the stereotype in the contemporary moment that they were these rabble rousers that were up to no good. So she sees how wrong that is while she's in the moment and she's able to empathize. But also Kiku herself doesn't become a no-no boy and she carries a lot of guilt with that. And so she talks to the people around her about how she feels about that. And they're able to comfort her and also reassure her that just because she's not taking the most radical action doesn't mean that she's not taking any action and that it's okay to be scared and that they're all scared and that the people who aren't necessarily saying no to both questions aren't in the wrong for not doing it. And then watching as Kiku sees those acts of resistance in everybody who's there, and some of it is in beautifying the space, some of it is in the way everybody protests for the right to have a funeral for Mr. Rakasa, some of it is in the fact that they organize to get schools going so that everybody gets to keep going in those moments. And it, it, you're right, it is the empathy. And then it's also the, I think, the quiet emphasis that you can take action and you can resist in so, so many ways. And it's okay to be scared when things are really scary, but you still have to figure out what your path forward is. You know, the message here is that it's okay to be scared and that because you're really scared because your personal safety is at risk, it's understandable that you that Kiku didn't say yes to both of these questions. But Kiku is still encouraged to figure out the ways in which she's she can push back in a way that is safe for her and she takes that lesson back with her to the 21st century she does the scary thing in that she tells her mom what's happening even though she thinks that her mom is probably going to think she's a little bit out there because she's time traveling and that's a little (laughs) intense Uh, but so she takes the risks she does the scary thing and then they are able to connect deeper and then once they have that deeper personal connection knowing that they've both been displaced that they've both gone through this experience then then they take action for people who are in trouble in 2017. And the book ends with them going to protests to keep families together at the borders and to make sure that everybody is welcome in the United States and that there's no ban based on religion and xenophobic practices. And she's able to move that forward and take, and take bigger actions when she's back in her time and place in her community. And I loved all of that. I love that too. And I love to... 
In addition to protesting, right, and standing up against inequity, one of Kiku's actions is tracing the history of her family and her grandmother, but also maybe some of the people that she met in the camp and other people, other people who were radicals, who we don't know the names of because history is told from the winning side to borrow Morales and Williams, I believe, 2019, (laughs) often quoted item. So. I guess that's that's that was something that stuck with me too, this idea that she took it upon herself to be the history keeper. Something we haven't talked too, too much about in relation to memory that I want to focus more on, I guess we've kind of touched upon it, but I want to dig a little bit deeper, is this idea of reclaiming your ancestral story or ancestral memory. And I'd like to know what some of your thoughts are on that, because I'm really struggling for words. But this this story felt inspiring to me because it was a way of healing. It was a way of healing that past trauma. And that's something I'm very interested in. And I like I love stories about and would like to see us all doing a little bit more, especially as a white person, right? Because it's likely that our families, or at least my family, or I don't even really know, but it's likely that I, I stand on a legacy of of, of trauma and, and violence, right? As a white person. So going back and figuring that out and kind of healing that seems very empowering to me. So I don't know, what were your thoughts about this act of displacement and this coming together with her mom and reclaiming their memories and kind of healing these past traumas together. I really liked it. I thought it was super beautiful. I, I guess coming from my professional background here for a second, this is a lot of what I do in my day to day is kind of encourage people that their personal experiences of history matter, that their ancestors experiences of of history matter, that we're all historical actors who have the power to change things in the contemporary moment for better or for worse that will have impact on future generations. And that impact is really important. And I think that reclaiming one's ancestral history when that's possible can be a really powerful way to understand that legacy and understand better how we all fit into our societies. And I think give us a lot of power to act moving forward today, understanding what some of that impact is. I don't think that's the only way to deal with community trauma and with ancestral history, especially given that for so many Black individuals in the United States, that option has largely been taken away from them by the evil legacy of white supremacy and slavery. But in this specific circumstance, and when it is possible, I think it can be really empowering and eye-opening to go back and see what your ancestors survived and what your ancestors thrived in and how all of that led up to you today. And think about yourself and your own community and how that impact, the impact that they had played out in their community. And now you have that same impact and that same power in your own community at your own present moment. I think that a lot of academic history is very focused on major historical figures and historical actors and is largely divorced from personal history. Not always, but often. And there are good reasons for that. (laughs) But I think that some of the power of local history specifically is that we get to see the ways in which we all matter in our social contexts and our social situations. Because 
that's all history really is at the end of the day is how certain social situations came about and how that affects economic situations and how that affects wars and how that affects documents and all of that good stuff. So I think that all of that context, when you have access to it, can be a really understanding and empowering thing. And I think as well, as you were mentioning, I think it can also be eye-opening in moral ways, especially for white individuals in the United States, when you go back and trace your ancestry. Damien and I just watched the latest episode four, season three of Atlanta last night, which for those of you who don't know, is Donald Glover's TV show. And that episode was all about what would happen in the United States if legal litigation let descendants of slave owners or of let descendants of slaves sue the descendants of slave owners for reparations and how all of that would play out. And a lot of the episode followed a white man who thought that he was in the clear because there was no way his ancestors would have ever owned slaves. And what happens when somebody knocks on his door and says, hey, you owe me three million fucking dollars (laughs) because of what happened in the past. And so much of that episode, I think, relates to that conversation, because I think that when you're in a position of power in society, you have a lot of moral obligation to understand how you got there, not just in terms of power structures, but maybe how you individually as a human being got here, because it is ancestral and it is passed down oftentimes through the people you're directly descended from. So those those are kind of a mix of my professional and personal thoughts on the matter. And also a little bit about Atlanta by Donald Glover, which is a great TV show. (laughs) Part of why I was thinking about this is because my father told me about that episode and so then was trying to trace back his history, which isn't something my family does for some reason. So (laughs) that's why it's on my mind outside of displacement. Anyway, speaking about this idea of healing family traumas, I don't really have much to say about this, but one of the things that made me teary-eyed is at the end of this book, the author includes a bunch of pictures of her family, her real life family. Oh, I'm trying to find them. Oh, here we go. So there's a picture of her mom and her standing outside the Topaz Museum, which is where one of the internment camps was. And then there are pictures of her grandmother with her violin. And I don't know, that's just, for that really felt like really beautiful to me because this is part memoir, even though there are fictionalized elements. And the author states that part of the reason that there are fictionalized elements is because she knows that she can't tell her grandmother's full story because she can't go back in time. But I feel like artwork like this and stories like this feel so empowering because you can see, they, they allow the author to to imagine that and to reclaim that history as we were talking about and even though I'm not personally the one reclaiming that history I get a lot from seeing somebody else go through that catharsis and go through that healing I don't know just like a small part of joy so artists writers I love when you do that and I will read it and I will be here for it (laughs) and apparently we'll both cry And I think too, I guess, to directly draw some parallels to feminism, I think that one of the things that I loved about both Kiku's journey to understand her female ancestors better, because this was largely a book that was about her understanding her mother and her grandmother better, was that idea that through reclaiming that family history and understanding that she could stand in better solidarity with her mom and her grandma, which was really, really beautiful. And also we see a lot of 
solidarity when she's in the camps. You know, Kiku goes in and she's completely by herself, completely isolated. She's 16 when when the book starts. She turns 17 while she's displaced, while she's in the past in 1943. And she's treated with nothing but open arms and sympathy and empathy by all of the women who she comes across, who take care of her, who help her. There's never the sense from the other women she's with of, oh dear God, I'm in this terrible situation and now I've got a kid on top of it, like all of a sudden just foisted upon me. Instead, the other woman she's with take her under her wing at first, she's with a woman named, she's paired with a woman named Aiko. And she lives with her for months and months and months. And Aiko, it never really says exactly how old she is, but she's a, an adult. She's a professional at the time of the novel. I would say it looks like she's maybe in her 20s, potentially, based on the drawings. But there's never a moment where Aiko isn't looking out for her. From the very moment they meet, she discovers that Kiku's alone and she's immediately like, all right, you know, you and me, we've got to stick, t- we've got to stick together. We've got to look out for each other. And she does that through the whole novel. And when they're then moved to Topaz in Utah, they're separated and they're not roommates anymore. But Aiko continually checks up on her when Aiko is moved to a higher security camp because Aiko is one of the no-no boys. She tells Kiku, she makes sure that Kiku's safe, that she's got a heads up. But then also when she's moved to Topaz, Kiku is boarded with an entire family, a mother and two daughters who are going through an, an extremely traumatic situation as well because they've been separated from their father, who's been targeted because he's a Japanese teacher, and therefore his loyalties the, to, the, to the United States are in question. And that relationship is slightly slower to develop, but is still equally as kind and caring between the four of them. And Kiku becomes really close with both daughters. And I just really loved that aspect of, There's so many ways in which this could have been so, so, so dangerous for Kiku, but the other women see she's alone and they immediately take care of her and they immediately bring her in because they're all going through something really traumatic and there's no reason to make it worse for this one girl just because she's alone and by herself, you know? So I loved both of those aspects of of solidarity and feminism that I saw kind of winding its way throughout throughout the novel. Yeah, this is definitely a... A woman-heavy novel, I'd say. We, I mean, we see solidarity from some of the men in terms of the friendships that Kiku ends up gaining. And also there is an old man who whittles her a little paintbrush. And he's also the same man who whittled her grandmother a little, a little violin. But yeah, this is a uniquely woman-centric story. And I wonder how much of that is the 1940s, but also... And how much of that is just the fact that Kiku's Japan heritage comes from her maternal line. But it did it did feel empowering, this idea of focusing specifically on our mothers and their stories and trying to find resilience and solidarity through it. And the many ways in which she has mother-like figures come into her life, as Maggie pointed out. While Maggie was talking, I was scrolling just to confirm people's names. And I could be wrong, but... <laughs> I wonder if I can find Aiko's name as well. At the very end, when we see some of the people who were these rabble-rousers that Kiku ends up writing about, there is one. So she she's on one of the pages as the rabble-rousers. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know. You're right. It is a very woman-centric novel, and there's so much terrible stuff going on in this novel. I mean, it's literally about 
American concentration camps. It's about internment camps. There is so much trauma. And I think that to me, that also just goes to show the power of community and the power of solidarity, because when we all stick together, even when extremely awful, extremely traumatic things are happening, when we have that aspect of solidarity, that's one of the things that can make it bearable. That's one of the things where you can find that hope, that you can find the will to survive, that you can find the will to persevere. And I just loved that message, both about resistance and how that community came together to resist in so many ways, but also just in the fact that it was it was that community connection and that solidarity that made things bearable. You know, as individuals, we all have the power to make everybody's day good or bad, make everybody's life experiences better or worse. And it would have been really easy to overlook one 16 year old girl who was by herself in a situation like this. And nobody did. And everybody made sure that she was okay. And that was just really, I don't know. It felt very important to me. I agree. It's definitely something to think about this idea of communities coming together and sticking up for one another, especially in times of hardship, especially as no matter who you are, your your world right now, because of uncontrollable circumstances, might get more and more hard, especially as years go on. So that's something I think that we should all keep in mind, is trying to look out for one another. Maggie, do you have anything else that you want to talk about within uh, about displacement? I think I've hit all of my points. I think I have too, but if you haven't read this graphic novel, it's it's super worth a read. It's really impactful. It's super good. You should all go read it's it. It's also... It was enjoyable for me as a 27-year-old who, yes, does read sometimes children's fiction for work, but I still found it a a good read as a 27-year-old, but it also seems very accessible for somebody who might be 12 or 11 or maybe even younger, depending on the kid. So I think it's a really great way to introduce this history and some of these concepts in a really understandable way. It's my turn. That's how conversations go. Yes, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's very, it was very, as an adult, sometimes when I read YA, I'm very aware that I'm reading YA and I wasn't in this one, but I could also see a 16 year old enjoying this and I could see a 12 year old enjoying this. It's written very impactfully, but very simply, and the images do a lot of the work. And even though it's talking about hard subjects, there isn't anything graphic too. So like, it, it's just very accessible. It's a very accessible, but also incredibly beautiful story. That being said, Miss Maggie, what are you reading? I am reading Caramello by Sandra Cisneros, who is most famous because she wrote the book The House on Mango Street. So I'm really excited to read something else by her. What are you reading? I'm reading two novels. One of them you might have already heard me talk about a bit on the podcast because I read multiple books at a time. So the first that I might have already talked about is called White Smoke by Tiffany Jackson. And it is very spooky scary. The tagline that they use to sell this book is Get Out Meets the Haunting on Hill House. And I only kind of know what that means at this point because I'm about halfway through. But it is spooky. It's spooky. It's not like if you're like kind of easily frightened, it's not going to necessarily do that to you. And it is a YA novel, but it's very entertaining and it seems to deal a lot with race and gentrification, and I, I'm only at the the tip of that. So it's already it's already been deeply embedded in there, and I'm interested to see what else happens. The other novel that I'm reading, both of these are are books that my school picked up recently, so I'm doing some double double dipping for work. 
But the other one that I'm reading is a new adult novel called She Gets the Girl. And it's a very cute new adult sapphic romance. I'm not very far along. I've just started getting to the middle, but I'm towards the beginning end. It is about two girls, one who has a not so great family life and one who has the perfect family life, but no social skills going to college. They're both freshmen in college and meeting and cuteness and also sexiness ensues. So it it, it seems like a promising romance. You've already told me what you're reading. So what are we reading or talking about next week or the week after next? Next week, we have a break fun episode. And then the week after that, we are reading an essay from a book called Left of Karl Marx, The Political Life of Black Communist Claudia Jones. So keep an eye out for next week's episode. And we'll be able to tell you what essay we're reading specifically. But that's the next reading assignment you all have. Very exciting. I'm excited. All right. Do we have anything else we want to tell the people? Be safe, people. Be safe. Fuck the police. They're on every subway station right now because I have a cop mayor. Also, COVID is up and y'all should wear masks. But I I don't want to like make this an individual problem because it's not an individual problem. But talk to your legislators about the fact that they don't care about your lives because capitalism sucks. And also keep fighting for Roe versus Wade. Ray, Ray, Roe versus Wade. That's what it's called, right? Nodding Maggie. Maggie is nodding yes. Please keep fighting for Roe versus Wade and for abortion and reproductive access. And please keep fighting for, in addition to your anti-cop fighting, for the lives of Black people and marginalized folks everywhere. And be nice to one another. That is my message to everyone. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.